Welcome to Return to Oz Minute, the podcast where we're analyzing the 1985 Disney classic Return to Oz one minute at a time. I'm Tierney Steele. And I'm Mike Carlucci. And this week, we're joined by our special guest, Brad Mendenhall from the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Hey, guys. Uh, really excited to be uh, joining you. Thank you so much for having Welcome. me. Welcome. Um, I'm going to launch us into our minute, and then we will ask you all about, because I have a feeling some of your background with Cosmic Geppetto is going to come up in our discussion of this movie. Um, this today is Minute 73, which starts with... The Gnome King explaining winning the game will equal getting the Scarecrow back, but it's going to take some risk. And it ends with the Gnome King explaining how the game is going to work in detail. But we've got some Princess Mombi in between. The Wheelers are back. And so is my distrust of this whole situation of would you like to play a game? (laughs) So, Brad, you're kind of a pop culture aficionado. Is that ever a good sign when the bad guy asks if you would like to play a game not only is it a bad sign when the bad guy but if it's a good guy who asks you that person's actually a bad guy nothing (laughs) good nothing good in a non-adult movie situation has ever happened from let's play a game if there isn't cheesy 70s music that accompanies someone asking that then it's not going to go well for anybody (laughs) boy so yeah um this is more i mean he's laying it out of how everyone will get three guesses to see if they can identify which ornament is actually the scarecrow that he was transformed into and if they guess right hey they get to keep the scarecrow good times what could go wrong um i don't what could go yeah, wrong yeah and it is not helped by the fact that I don't think the over-the-shoulder with his hands Gnome King effect holds up as well as some of the other Gnome King effects. When it's just his face, I'm impressed. When it's the over-the-shadow, not so much. Yeah, agreed. It, it, I mean, when I'm um, watching this and, and just you're in with, you know, adult <laughs> eyes... And uh, I was like, wow, this is that was a really great effect when you see him talk. But then uh, it, 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 it's straight ahead angle or even pulled back a little bit where you can see more movement, just not his face can look great. But a lot of other angles look and, and they you, you sort of see the seams a little bit yeah. more. I mean, I guess, hey, kudos to them, because it really does depend on the angle. Some of these are great. It's just certain ones aren't up to the same standard. Well, and this came out. What was it? 84? 85. 85. So this is this is stop motion. So it's not like a CGI. The amount of time and effort and energy that must have gone into this, and I've had friends who did a little bit of claymation just as a hobby because that's the sort of people mm-hmm. I hang with, and uh, just doing a few seconds of it can take. Uh, herculean effort so to make it look this good and that sort of seamless and have that fun creepy feel to it i mean um the character has sort of a nice kindly voice but you know something's wrong but 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 the character still feels so wrong and off just because of how creepy that motion is and i i i imagine it's it's either intentional or it was just a happy coincidence that it happened that way 
Yeah, I'm a fan. Um, I, I was trying to remember what episode it's in where I believe in Parks and Rec, Ben makes a stop motion video at one point. To the song Stand by R.E.M. Okay, R. okay. <laughs> and he's yeah. showing it off. Yeah, when he's unemployed. And he's showing it off and it's like, it's only, what, eight seconds long? It's like, that took all day. <laughs> He compared it positively. He compared it positively to uh, Avatar <laughs> uh, when he described it to someone and realized how little yeah. he'd done. It's yeah, but, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I made a, a stop motion film with friends in high school. Like over over four summers, uh, we had all these like action figures, and it, it was it was called Grumby. We made a it was a Gumby type parody, and we spent weekends on this for hours doing you know taking individual shots and frames and you know senior year we put it together and it was like 35 seconds or 40 seconds and we were like oh stuff that we did like a scene for is five frames like this isn't gonna work (laughs) we spent so much time on it like you felt like you did a lot so i can only i can only imagine what it would have taken to get something like yeah. <laughs> like the gnome yeah. king and the gnomes like it's it's just mind-boggling like that's that's a ridiculous amount of work and it looks pretty good from it looks pretty good from the front i i don't know what you what else you could say yeah. i mean it's <laughs> it's so impressive like you can it's it's weird because you can almost understand people doing the work on the computer more mm-hmm. but the, the uh doing the stop motion is just it's just it, it's something that you don't get to see that that skill set anymore. No, and there's something charming about sort of imperfections in TV in, in movies now when you see it because when uh, you know I have kids and uh, they're five and seven, uh, um, so I watch a lot of kids programming. And what strikes me is how perfect all the animation is, and it ends up being a little bland and boring as opposed to when you because uh, sometimes a little intentional and it's often unintentional distortion or you know with the old looney tunes uh, hand-drawn cartoons um they would have just a fantastic out of proportion stuff and because everything's so perfect now they don't need to i I don't think you have happy accidents so you you end up with some really inspired stuff but then you do end up with the the flip side of that is you do end up somewhere because of the constraints of the format they're using you end up with oh that angle doesn't look great, but we need to have that angle. And they may not have even found out that the angle didn't work until months after they had done the filming and there was no way to refilm it. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by how things are assembled, like what order things are done in. We have um, the character Belina. We've actually questioned a lot of times because she has many lines that aren't in the version of the script we're looking at, and it's pretty close to filming. Like, it's not the shooting script, but it is very close. And, like, what, Mike, 50% of her lines aren't in it? But we were like, that's At least, that's a yeah. voice of a puppet. When could you, you know what I mean? Like, some of them, you could look at the finished thing and say, ah, you could add a line in here. There's time where you're not, like, looking at the puppet's mouth or something. But it's just, like, there's things that are added that are, like, how did they... Do, you know, do you go back and do a pickup later or do you reuse footage from another time? Like, I'm just absolutely fascinated by kind of what's the process for lining all this stuff up. And I think maybe some of that comes out of being a kid of the 80s with those cartoons where it was just like, 
they they did the drawings overseas and then they got shipped back and it was like yeah whatever comes out is what's going on your saturday morning cartoons <laughs> well yeah and uh, a lot of the animation that you would watch in the 80s especially like uh, the filmation mm-hmm. stuff where they would just reuse so much product uh, the, the the he-man cartoon was um notorious for that where if you watch five episodes you were going to see between five to ten minutes of the same footage used again and again he's going to have like a specific move when he runs down a corridor where he stops looks left looks right and then runs right that was in every single episode and you know a lot of cartoons would sort of live and die by that because of the limitations of the the, of the art form especially when you're doing a cheap saturday Mm -hmm. morning cartoon you know return to oz at least had a a, a sizable budget. Yes. I mean, it was twenty-eight million. Definitely something around there. I I just know um, uh, not not what it made back in the box office. Unfortunately. Yeah, I have the Wikipedia page in front of me. Uh, t- budget twenty-eight yeah. million, box office of eleven million, and twenty-eight million and eighty-four eighty-four money. That's that's a lot yeah. of money. Well, this was. I mean, you have to think of how ambitious this project was they brought a lot of people over from uh the muppet studios and and behind the scenes and then they got some big names well big names and not big names for acting um they used a lot of behind people who were used to doing puppetry for like the voice of jack and the voice of the gump but uh, I'm looking at, like, Gene Marsh's career, Nicole Williamson's career, and these are not, like, up there with Marlon Brando, who's come up, like, 18 times in the bio of Nicole Williamson on IMDb, but they have these huge careers that just stretch on and on and on and on. And so, and, and it's Walter Murch who... Yes, this is his directorial debut, but he was used to working on, oh, a little bit bigger than Tiny Projects. <laughs> yes, it seems like this movie's made up of a lot of journeyman performers uh, and well-respected journeyman performers, and then they all sort of... It, it, this was like everyone's big swing to become the, the next guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Merch, this was his big directorial effort, and then you look at his IMDb page. He has two director credits: this in 1985, and then in 2011, an episode of Star Wars: Clone yeah. Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he. Uh, it's it's like the joke. I don't know where you guys fall in the sibling order, but my sister is seven years younger than me, and my mom said it's because it took her seven years to get over me, being born. <laughs> um, and. Yeah, he uh, he made this movie. He got it out, but that was the end of that for Walter. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but of course he also did work on you know the Godfather movies and Apocalypse yeah. Now, and you know, he did just... all right. He did all right. <laughs> yeah, and hey, he got the movie out there. Yeah. And you know, I I know people in the entertainment industry that would love to get that to direct that one movie and have that one shot. So being able to do that and to do it with a nice budget and, ah, you know, yeah. it's, you, you take that swing. And I'm really glad he did get that budget because, you know, I'm nitpicking, oh, from this angle, this doesn't work as well. The fact that it works at all is due to the fact that Disney sank serious money into the production. I mean, you can't have this many puppets and skimp. 
Right, right, right. So, um, well, and they they believe in it. You know, as we've brought up a few times, Oz is one of those properties that, uh, you know, hasn't had aside from the musical, hasn't had kind of the definitive translation to film. And you know, the musical is its own is its own universe, really, from the Oz universe. Uh, like like in the in the books, like there's more to do, and they they bet on Return to Oz, and it uh, you know it probably didn't it didn't pay off for them. <laughs> I wondered how you were gonna spend that. <laughs> they did get an interesting film. Yes, yes. Like they they didn't get nothing for their money. They got they got something, uh, well, and it's weird, but they got a film. Well, what's funny is as of um, as we're recording this. Uh, the Cosmic Tomato Podcast just put out our 99th episode where we talked with Scott Corelli from uh, Dueling Genre Productions. And we talked a little bit about how there's some properties in Hollywood that they just keep coming back to over and over again, regardless of if people want it or not. And the examples we used was Tarzan. They, every 10 years, they make another Tarzan movie. Nobody cares. They make a Lone Ranger movie or TV show every 10 years, and it always fa- falls on its face. Um, and they just came out with a King Arthur movie, and for, for the love of God, we don't like King Arthur, and <laughs> and Wizard of Oz has a little bit about that. I mean, what was it? The the iconic Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. That was the third or fourth Wizard of Oz movie. People don't yeah, realize that there they were... they were yeah. some Attempts. silent films, and and just in my lifetime, you know, they they had that James Franco movie that did pretty well, the Oz the the Great and Powerful. Um, but other than that, you know, God, there was a Tin Man mo- uh, TV series that was on F- uh, Sci-Fi that had the girl from uh, New Girl, um, and there's just been a lot of Wizard of Oz. I feel like in my in my lifetime, there's probably been double-digit iterations of Wizard of Oz, and it's just something that they keep coming back to because it grabs people. Or but. But it's, it seems like it's just really hard to, and because the Judy Garland is so iconic, it's hard to get another one that really connects with people in a huge audience way. But they have had success with, and, you know, I, like I say, Return to Oz didn't make back mm-hmm. its money. But it still has connected pe- with people in a, like a cult following way. And that's yeah. something. That's something. And I definitely think Feruza Falk is a big part of that. I love that she does like the little intro to the DVDs and is like, this was really important to me. It's just so crazy, and uh, she's such a she's such a beautiful girl with um, you know great kid actor presence, and it's like I know who she becomes, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm a fan of hers, and I think she has such an amazing look. Um, as she's grown up, she has a, a, like a great raspy voice, which she doesn't have as a child, and um, just a, a great distinct persona. And it's so crazy. It's like this is where she began, and she's a Completely different kid. It's not like um, the the girl who played Wednesday Adams in the Adams Family. Uh, movie. Christina Ricci. Um, Christina Ricci. Now she, uh, Christina Christina Ricci. When you see her as Wednesday Adams, and then you see the actress that she's become, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. That completely tracks. Um, and it's a little different in the case of um, in this case with uh, a Valk, where if you put a picture of the two next to each other, you'd be like, wow, I can't, I'm surprised that happened. See, I have loved watching her in this movie because there have been a couple times where she has done, not a facial tick, but she has done something with her face and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, 
you're going to do that again in your life, you know, on film. And you get a little tiny bit of that when he's asking, when the Gnome King is asking her, you know, that's worth a little risk, isn't it? And she bites her lip, like half bites her Mm. lip. I feel like she's done that in movies, like that that's a... That's something that I've seen her do as an adult that you're seeing like the first time here, which I just think is so cool. Um, kind of a favorite. That is, it is well, it, it that's the advantage you get when you watch when you watch these minute by minute. You can actually really examine. It's like oh, and, and see those mm-hmm. ticks and see the. You know. Doing minute by minute podcast is a great way to really uh, learn all the intricacies, wonderful things about a movie, and also ruin it for yourself. <laughs> um. Well, one of the things that I was like, oh, this might be the scariest thing in the movie is the cut from the very quiet, calm, dangerous, that's worth a little risk moment to the wheelers. But then they're so pathetic. I can't even be mad at them. They're so tired. The wheelers are really interesting characters and those are um, th- those are from the books. I mean, those the, the, the wheelers are uh, characters from the books. And I remember just having my mom reading me wizard of oz books when i was little and the wheelers are scary on the on the written page and uh, in this scene at least uh, they're, they're, and also the angle they're at it sort of ruins the intimidation factor a little bit where they just look you know it, it's still an impressive feat and a good costume design the way they put them together but they don't quite have the the same uh intimidation factor that I remember when my mom read it, would read the stories to me. But I love when she's yelling at them and they, like, multiple of them lift up wheels and are pointing and like, look, this happened. Like, what do you want? Um, I don't know what choice Jean Marsh is making with her voice. I mean, my throat is sore just thinking about her lines in this movie. <laughs> what? It, it, it's, it's reminded me a little bit of uh, on those times... When when I whenever I see a, a TV show where they'll have a woman, uh, an actress portraying a man, and not like in drag or something, it's like, hey, we're, we're going to have an episode of uh, Portlandia where the, they they do a sort of a gender mm-hmm. switch and they just like digitally or you know or t- turn up the bat the bass in a uh, on her mic to just like try to make her sound like a man. It's like that sounds like half of what they're going through. They 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 tweak the uh, the audio on her on her, on her mic to give her that weird. Let's make her sound as much like a dude as possible. It's a choice because it's not necessary when you think about it. Um, yeah, I I'm glad you get to see both our bad guys though in this minute. Well, in the bad guy and. Mambi is so important because that's an. This is obviously the correlation to the Wicked Witch, and that's a tough, tough role to take on. Um, because there aren't too many bad guys in literature that are more um, iconic than the Wicked Witch of the West. So you know that's that that's that's a that's a tough gig to take on, knowing it's like I'm going to be compared to the Wicked Witch, and it's going to be hard to you know, follow up on that as a, as a case, as opposed to the Gnome King, Gnome King where, you know, there's no real correlation. So, yeah. it's, uh, so, so I, God I bless. That is a wizard, uh, challenging. Like, that's the closest though. Yeah. Yeah. But even, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the closest you could have would be the wizard, but 
the wizard was such a was so different because it, you know gnome king is sort of more legit as opposed to the wizard who was just a con man mm, that's fair um i'm just being very rude and also looking at the imdb to see how many people are listed as claymation artists there are quite a few <laughs> um and then I had had a note to talk about who is playing the Wheelers, but we've already discussed them quite a few times, so I'm going to let it go. I am not able to confirm whether or not our favorite female Wheelers made it back from the Deadly Desert, because it's impossible to tell. <laughs> they all look the same. Um, I did have... We do know that Ponsmar made it yes, back. Yes, yes. Ponsmar made it back. Once again, he's our only identifiable Wheeler. And I definitely remember as a kid being completely confused when Mombi's like, oh, you've got to get me to the Gnome King then. And I was like, they can't go across the desert. We just learned this. I mean, I guess it's spoilers. They're going to make it. But like, (laughs) I I even remembered when I was watching it as a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, this did take me a while to put together what was going on. Sort of a job that, you know, yeah. Being a wheeler really seems like something you need a lot of good roads. Yeah, which people have brought up that they live in this post, post-apocalyptic Oz. And yet, what the the only creature left that has evolved has wheels for feet. <laughs> yeah. Somebody didn't think about this I design. feel like Darwin would have had a lot to say about this. <laughs> and we see a lot of shots of... I mean, you know, like second 23 when we're looking down, kind of beat up. We see the the, uh, the yellow brick road mm. in v- com- total ruin. Like, the, these roads, sure, it would be bumpy. There's no way that you could send the wheelers on a long mission when the only road through the forest is the yellow brick road that is in pieces. Yeah. Like, her henchmen have a very limited range based on what we've seen. Yeah, it really shows the value of flying monkeys. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, I wonder what happened. To flying monkeys, monkeys will get around. Maybe, the, maybe the flying monkeys are just in another part of Oz, not involved in this. Yeah, I, I figure once the flying monkeys were free at the end of the first one, it seems like those would be hard to con, hard to control. Yeah, they're doing their own thing. Yeah, monkeys just gonna fly. <gasps> Planet of the flying monkeys. All <laughs> oh, true. Um, and then we return. To the Gnome King's cave, or throne room, or whatever this is. I do like that the little... He's yeah, dead. I like that the interlude of Mombi let us see that it is more... You know, it kind of marks the passage of time in a way that you do not get anywhere else in this movie from now on. So I appreciate that. Excuse How do you me. mean? So we crash landed on this mountain said I guess you knew it was morning then, because it was pretty light when they landed on the mountain, but... Ever since then, and from now on, we're going to be underground for most of the rest mm. of this movie. So you don't really have a sense of how much time is going by or when it is passing because, well, I shouldn't act surprised though. It took me until doing this minute by minute to realize that everything we've seen up to this point happened within like 24 hours. <laughs> <sighs> Just in general, the way time passes in movies makes me pretty crazy <laughs> because the, the rules are so inconsistent and it doesn't take into consideration just like, hey, people actually sleep. And that's been the joke about the the, the TV show 24 
where, you know, Kiefer Sutherland is 24 hours straight. It's like, ah, listen, I would need a nap at some point. The people talk about how, you know, oh, he never uses the bathroom, he never eats. He's like, that's not the problem. The problem is, I'd just be tired. Yeah, if you're up for 24 hours straight, you should not be making life or death decisions like his character would have been. Yeah. And, um, gosh, what was it? They just had on TV, uh, I don't know if you guys are into these movies or not, but the the, the X-Men Days of Future Past. Oh, have you guys yeah. ever watched this? Yeah. Because that's the one that, you know, time travels, essentially. Yeah, the whole concept is that the one character, Kitty Pride, can focus on Wolverine and basically send his his brain back into the past, and she just has to focus the whole time. And then, what they don't doesn't really explain is she's focusing and she's there in the the future, the the, the dystopian future. And then there's like Wolverine. He's taking a plane here. He's taking a plane back. They they're taking they they're gonna like go about the they're gonna like attack deal with the the bad guys the next morning they're asleep in the castle is like holy crap this poor girl she's like focusing in the future it's meanwhile like two three days have passed and there's you know poor ellen page just and acting her poor heart out just like just trying to like like have the look of really concentrated it's like wow that that that's a terrible job as an actress so you know you, you see that a lot of times in movies where it's like uh how is this? How how is time passing? And then when you have something like this, where you're taking away all the visual cues, where you don't see the sunrise, sunset, or the the different, you know, when you're inside, so it can be. I, I can imagine it can be watching it can be even disorienting. Yeah, I I never had any concept of like when any of this was happening, which is a little kid you just run with. Um, I I will give a shout out to the most egregious example of time not lining up as it should uh in transformers 2 it takes a while (laughs) to get from petra to the pyramids also you can't get where they are but that's even that taking that beside the point it takes more than a couple hours it's not a quick drive they are not near each other drove me insane um so how many times did you have to watch all the Transformers movies to finally find the one gap in logic well, in that film series? Well, so <laughs> I have a soft spot for the first one just because it just it was the right movie at the right time and it wasn't as egregious as the sequels. Um, so I enjoyed that to the point where I was excited to go see two. Really? And then that happened. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, that was... That was an experience. Oh, uh, you know, one was fun. Yeah. It was silly. You finally got a chance to see these characters, and they they use some of the same voice actors to, to actually take on the roles of Optimus Prime. Sounded like Optimus Prime from the yeah. 80s. That was the and best that was part. Very if, you cool. if you didn't yeah. care about it being great cinema, Transformers, the first movie, is perfectly enjoyable. Like, it's a good summer, giant robots fighting fun. Like, fine. That was great. And then the second one, I was like, yeah, more fighting robots. Like, they kept getting me because I would see the commercials for the new one coming out and be like, that looks like it might redeem. Nope. Nope. It's terrible again. And now I've seen it. Um, anyway, okay. Sorry. Live Google Mapsing. Mm-hmm. From the Pyramids of Giza to Petra, uh, it would take, it's 700 kilometers. Thanks for translation, Google, I guess, <laughs> since we're in the other part of the world. Uh, it would take you nine hours and 40 minutes to drive. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, the Transformers can drive faster probably than a normal car. But, yeah, no, that, that, that that's a day trip for them yeah. to, to move Also, out. there's no, like, oh, I don't know, borders in between or <laughs> places where you have to be going. So, yeah, no, whatever. Yeah, it's not the only... And there are, there are actually worse things about that movie, but that's the thing that I finally was just like, you know what? I've been giving you a lot of slack here, and I don't know that I can... I could handle it. the racist robots. I could handle the... Yeah, yeah. Oh. It was just... It was, it was very much the straw that broke the Transformers back. Poor Jazz. Poor Bumblebee. We're just gonna, yeah, this is like the ultimate sad bell situation. But that's okay, because it's about a movie that I don't have to talk about one minute at a time. Tip of the hat <laughs> to whoever ends up doing that, because my goodness. <laughs> well, um, it's funny you bring that up, because uh, what I'm going to be, and, and we haven't even really officially announced this yet, but you, you guys get the exclusive. Ooh. Uh, one of the next things we're going to be doing uh, next year, hopefully probably early next year, uh, from Geppetto Studios, we, we did a minute-by-minute minute, uh, show before. We did a Ar- Minute of Darkness where we talked about Army of Darkness. And next we're going to be doing the animated Transformers movie Ooh, from the 80s. okay. Yes. So we're, we're, there's still a whole lot of details to be putting together, mm-hmm. but yeah, because uh, – it's amazing how many things that cartoon movie got right that the live actions have never gotten right. That will be an interesting analysis. That's awesome. A soundtrack starring Weird Al Yankovic. Yes, yes, yes. And, and featuring a song that was then later used in um, by sung by uh, um, what's his name, uh, Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, in uh, Boogie Nights. Really. The, the song The Touch. Oh, really? Like the bit, yeah, the big action <laughs> scene, The Touch. That's the song that Optimus Prime used when he started like destroying all the Decepticons. Yeah. And then tw- 20 years later when Marky Mark is in the uh, recording studio during Boogie Nights, that's the same song he sings. And he sings it really bad in the movie. And, and I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute. I know this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um... That kind of seamlessly transitions us into plugs, if you guys want. Um, I feel like I've plugged enough, okay. and I will uh, plug again. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's it's been so much fun talking with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to coming back tomorrow. So uh, yeah, just you know, cosmicchipetto.com, and you'll find out what we're up to. <laughs> and uh, Mike, what have we been up to? We're over at uh, return to ozminute.com, weogtlpog.com. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all are Oz Minute. And if you want to join in the conversation, post your favorite Transformers memories. <laughs> uh, we're still looking for lunchboxes. I don't remember why, but eh, we got it was very part of the podcast. The lunch pails and talked oh, about yeah, lunchboxes. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Well, that. It's our Facebook group, The Return to Oz Minute Listener's Flying Sofa. It's more of a walking sofa now, but, yeah, you know, it's the the, the dream lives on. Well, and maybe Mommy's going to build one. It'll always fly in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, come back tomorrow, and we will find out how this game's going to go, because, like I said at the top of this episode... I'm not exactly optimistic. 
But Optimistic Prime. Oh boy! Oh, All right. Oh. Wordplay. Yeah. Very yep. nice. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Strap in. It's going to be a long week. <laughs> All right. Well, we close out every episode by saying our film's magic words. I don't think uh, Army of Darkness probably had those. Uh, Mike and I will trade off saying Weog and Tiog. And then if you would like to join us on Piog, we invite you to do All so. Right. Um, and I guess I'll go first since I'm already talking. <laughs> Weog. Tiog. Pee-yong. Pee-yong.